0: Hi, I'm Jason Limbeck, and this is Who Lives Like This, where each episode, Elizabeth and I have conversations with our kinds of celebrities, caregivers of kids and young adults with disabilities.
1: Today's guest is an extra special one because she is the one of the, I guess we could call it a trio of guests that we've had on the show. Eileen Chazen is a mom, wife, physical therapist, and Pilates instructor. She grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles. Her love of the ocean brought her to Santa Barbara for college, and in 1990, her love of science and physical activity brought her to Boston, where she became a physical therapist. Eileen began her career in San Francisco, where she met Chris Gabbard, whom she wed in 1992. In 1999, August, Chazen Gabbard, the subject of prior podcasts with both Chris and Eileen and Chris's daughter, Cleo, was born. August was born, and in 2001, the family moved to Jacksonville, Florida for Chris's work. Later that year, she gave birth to Cleo. Eileen owns a small business in Jacksonville, Florida, where she practices as a physical therapist and a Pilates instructor. She still loves nature, physical activity, being a mom, and cooking, but she hopes to return to her former favorite activities, such as pleasure reading, ceramics, and travel.
0: This is such a a pleasure to have uh, Eileen on the show and just had this kind of unique perspective of having all three of them on over the past several months, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Elizabeth.
1: Hey, Jason. How are you? I am like super scattered, and in lieu of telling you why, I'm going to tell you that I went to an IHOP this week for the first time in like a million years because I don't really go to IHOPs, but I sat down because I had an hour between classes that I was teaching, and I opened my menu, and they have a 55-plus menu now, and <laughs> and I ordered from it, and I was not carded, which means... Oh, no. Yeah. It means that not only am I 55-plus, but I don't even look... Like I need to be carded, so
0: I would have carded you, and I'm not just saying that. That's a
1: no. Let me tell you though, if you're 55 plus and you've got some years away, you can get like a whole breakfast for seven dollars and seventy cents, which in L.A. is like incredible. That's jackpot.
0: Yeah, I geez. know.
1: So that was, you know, it makes for a good story, but it was slightly, kind of slightly, I don't know, unnerving. I don't have anything else better than that. That's like literally the best thing that happened to me this week. Sorry.
0: <laughs> I am curious to: are there different actual menu items on there? Like I, the Mickey Mouse for kids under ten? Is there like a, a geriatric version of? The I didn't pancakes? really notice.
1: <laughs> they seem. <laughs> I kind of flipped through the menu looking for maybe the senior menu, but it, apparently, seniors been downgraded to fifty five plus. So, yeah, Yeah. no, I mean, they noted what was, you know, bad for your cholesterol and what were your healthy items. But why would anyone go to IHOP for something, you know, healthy? So I did get a little a whole breakfast thing, but it was pretty impressive. Get it for seven dollars and 70 cents. And it was it was really good. So anybody out there, 55 plus Try IHOP if you
0: sponsored by.
1: (laughs) Sponsored by IHOP. Oh, that would be really awesome, right? And ironic. So, how are you?
0: Things are going well on our end. Our our little Isaac, the three year old, turns four on on Sunday. So, we've got a bunch of festivities related to that. And it's just so fun to see. Like you forget birthdays, how magical they are until you see a four-year-old. I mean, he's got cupcakes for his preschool today, and then he's got his friends meeting us at the pool tomorrow, and then another party with family on Sunday. So for him, it's like these are the best days of his life.
1: (laughs) It's awesome. Happy birthday.
0: Yeah, little man. Let's uh, let's bring on Eileen. Welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: It's so wonderful. We feel like we, in some ways, already know you, having uh, Cleo and Chris on the show prior. But uh, we'd love, uh, by starting, just, just to get um, your brief snapshot of your family, if you don't mind.
2: Well, thank you. Um, they are certainly a hard act to follow, especially my daughter. She was so eloquent when she spoke.
0: Yeah, she was. It was uh, Elizabeth and I talked after that show. And and I think for weeks afterwards, we were still just floored by, I mean, just what, a, what an amazing human being she is.
1: Yes, I agree. Yeah, Eileen and I were talking just before the show, and we were kind of not boasting about our children, the siblings, but just kind of marveling at how these young adults grow to be such beautiful children and how it kind of takes our breath away. And I think I loved hearing Eileen saying that she had just listened to Cleo's again and kind of couldn't believe that she was her mother. And it was just beautiful. I feel that way about my young adult sons as well. And I don't know, it's just a nice little exchange. And I was happy to hear Eileen say that because Cleo was just so incredible when she spoke. But I also um, wanted to ask you, Eileen, um, generally, when we talk on the show, we ask um, people sort of what motivates them, what helps them to get out of bed. But I was thinking with you, I would ask you who you were before you were a caregiver for August. And then, of course, A mother, a bereaved mother, but who you were when you were a young woman before this whole journey began.
2: Well, I had come to San Francisco after graduate school because I was in love with San Francisco. I had gone to San Francisco after college when I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up and had worked in a couple restaurants there and then decided to become a physical therapist. So I'd had this period of time in San Francisco and thought it was a great place and then went to graduate school and secured my job well before the point I graduated. And I came back to San Francisco with about 10 of my classmates from Boston, all living in the area. So I had this rich group of friends, and we would run and hike. And soon after, I met Chris, and he was working on his master's degree in English literature. And we just were a part of San Francisco. We loved the restaurants and coffee and hiking and friends. And We lived relatively near the the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's just a really rich life, and we were so naive. And then when we decided to uh, have a child, you know, I was in love with the notion of having a child because I I really didn't grow up with that sense, like, I'm going to have two boys and two girls, and their names are going to be, you know, Mary and Alex and and so forth. So just a a very free spirit, quite naive and um, very innocent time of my life.
1: You are a physical therapist. And then I believe you, when did you have August?
2: Chris and I were married in 92, but I had become a physical therapist in 1990. So a couple years, and then we gave birth to August in 99. So we had seven years together before August was born. And he was born March 5th of 1999 in the hospital that had been my hospital that I worked at. And I was, you know, devoted to this hospital. I had risen up the ranks from a staff therapist to a supervisor. And I had gone back to school for an additional year of training and in residency. And then I came back in a kind of clinical specialist management role. And I was rising through the ranks of this medical center. And that's the hospital that August was born in.
1: And I didn't realize that i mean i I kind of vaguely remember talking to Chris that you were a physical therapist, but what was that like as if you're already in the field where you're working with people with injuries and and so on and and was that strange and shocking thing when you realized that your own child would have problems?
2: Well, if I go back to my pregnancy, I was very careful with my pregnancy in terms of my physical fitness decisions. I read about running, like how much should you run when you're pregnant, if it's safe at all. So I had made decisions during my whole pregnancy based on my ability to read research and understand research. I ate very carefully. You know, I, I just did everything as I thought I should. And then when I had August, you know, they didn't know what was wrong with him initially as they presented it to us. There was a a series of options of what could be going on with him. They never plainly said what was wrong with him. And I think that was their intent. And when we first brought him home, I thought, oh, no problem. He won't be able to use maybe his legs as well. He could have cerebral palsy. I envisioned children walking with crutches or... Uh, a child um, with difficulty um, having speech be understood. And for me, that felt fine because those seemed like issues in which I still could recognize the person in that. It was only later when we realized that August was so cognitively affected and you could see it in his development. And that I became really quite sad that his... What I thought was his potential was going to be greatly limited. And there was a real grieving and a sorrow and, of that moment. And, and he was, um, couldn't communicate. And I think he was uncomfortable in his body from his birth or from the medications we gave him. And he cried a lot and I couldn't soothe him and no one could soothe him. And we actually, the only thing that soothed him was he would suck on our fingers. Couldn't be a pacifier, had to be our fingers and it had to be touching the roof of his mouth. And I've since learned that that's a really important important calming center, the stimulation of the hard palate of the roof of the mouth. And that's what calmed him. And for four to six months, this child cried nonstop. I would drive in the car. I had a very little car and I would wrap my arm around his little car seat and he would suck on my finger while we were driving the car.
1: Wow. Wow.
2: So that stuff was challenging. I had so many fantasies of what my baby was going to be like. Like we were going to walk in his little stroller while I was off from maternity leave and we'd go to Pete's coffee and I'd have a latte and he'd sleep and I'd read the paper. You know, so it really was... Awakening for me of August and then it was that evolution of like, okay, this is who you are What do we need to do and how can we take care of you? Because I was in love with this boy the minute Chris and I said let's let's have a baby, you know I was already madly in love with him.
0: I haven't thought of it that way like thinking about the sort of physical elements of something like cerebral palsy and you're just giving your training like that sort of initial realization and you were equipped for that, you know, given your background. But then when you bring in the cognitive impairment and the, the you know, the, the challenges of um, him being in pain and, and not being able to, to find the source, like that's, yeah, that, that must have been like falling off a cliff.
2: It was interesting. I worked um, at the medical center. Part time, I was located in an orthopedic setting. And part-time I was located in a woman's health setting, which I found a little challenging. And so my patients had pelvic floor kinds of problems throughout a woman's lifespan kind of problems. But one of the women there was a urogynecologist, and she had been specifically in OBGYN at one point. And she knew about August, and she asked me questions sometimes. And she told me about friends of hers who had a child with a similar birth history, but their child... Couldn't respond at all to them, and so she told me how fortunate I was that yeah. Augie could smile and respond. And and indeed, we were so fortunate because Augie laughed and giggled, and he would you know look you kind of near your eyes. He had, he had a visual impairment, but sometimes his vision was better than other times, and he would sort of look out of his quadrant that he could see when he would look over toward you. And, and sometimes Chris and he would do this little cooing thing back and forth. And he was there and he was communicating. And it was
1: amazing. Beautiful. What got you through those early years? Did you keep working? And did you divvy up the caregiving I uh, remember when Chris told us when you had a neck injury, but I think that was quite a bit later and he had to take on some of the heavy lifting and all, but in the early years, I'm imagining while he was in graduate school or early teaching, were you the primary caregiver and how did you get through that period?
2: I think it's eight months off. It was like standard was six. They gave me extra. We went back to work. We found him a space in like a daycare, but a fancy daycare associated with the medical center. And Chris still participated every day, um, despite his master's degree. I mean, he he just fell in love with this child. And I think something struck Chris very early on, this, this vulnerability. About him and um, captured his heart in a very unique way. And Chris would take him to his earlier intervention program and participate in that. You know, I tried extremely hard to breastfeed him. And when that didn't succeed, I pumped milk as long as I could. And so Chris participated in that. I did take him to a lot of therapies, I did pick him up a lot but Chris definitely did um, a big share. I think I did all the doctors or most of the doctor's appointments in those days. And I even slept with August every night because it helped to calm him. When I became pregnant with Cleo, August was about two-ish, a little over two. And I felt very anxious about how I was gonna handle the two of them. But I had this, um, I don't know, this very deep feeling that told me that it was okay. I could, um, I could let go a little bit of August and it would be okay. And I could let this other, you know, developing person in that it would be okay. I mean, I really had devoted myself to August. I really... In the early days, I'm one of those kind of people who believe everything, you can figure out everything. So I really wanted to figure August out. Like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And at some point, I came to the realization with the cognitive impairment, like, hmm, probably I'm going to remain optimistic and hopeful, but he's probably not going to follow in his father's footsteps to go to Stanford. You know, that's probably not going to happen. And I can't say I was the primary caregiver in those days. I think I might have done a little bit more, but. When Cleo was born, then I had another period of time off and poor little Cleo, just like all second siblings, you know, she got transported from appointment to appointment
1: Yeah. and, yeah. Um,
2: you know, she just learned to roll with it. And um, then we started to have a lot of caregivers to help out. And sometimes I, I wish we had had less caregivers and we had stayed more with the family. Uh, looking back, I, I feel like I missed some important times with August.
1: Let's go back cuz this is I don't think we've ever talked about it on the podcast and that's when those of us whose first child was born with um significant issues whether they were medical or from birth or, or developed and then that sort of feeling of wanting to have another child but particularly when you don't know what happened or what was wrong or if it was accidental or something but I really what struck me what you said was that you knew that you could have Clio, that you could make room. And it, it's very different though, from when you know you want another child, like the reasons. And I mean people have always asked me like, how did you get up enough nerve? And it was kind of a nervy thing to do to have another, at least in our my circumstances. But what did you say again? You said something about how you just felt this very deep sense. That
2: I um well actually before I decided to conceive Cleo I got all the medical records together and I brought them to another doctor in town and I I paid him a small sum of money to review August's records not to tell me whether anything had been done wrong or not but just to tell me would it be okay for me to think about it have another child because the medical center told me nothing about what happened at that time. We've since learned more, but I knew nothing then. And so this doctor was wonderful. He took my medical records, he brought them back, and he described it as um, how he would manage it differently the next time. And he just used those words of like, August had experienced a perfect storm, which is very hard to hear, but I appreciated him willing to review the records. And so I had some difficulty conceiving Cleo. I got pregnant right off the bat and I then had miscarriage and I knew I had the miscarriage and it took us another six months to conceive Cleo. But as I prepared for that, I really had a deep spiritual feeling that gave me permission in a sense that I could love another baby and I could open up my heart to another baby because I was so devoted to August I mean, he was everything to me. Yeah,
0: it is. It's, you know, there's the the lens that you touched on, Elizabeth, of taking another chance, knowing that what could happen. And then there's the lens that Leah and I still talk about to this day, which is, it's a standard parent question of, can you split your love between multiple kids? But in, in this case, it's fraught with the additional, that additional, in our case, how much support and love Noah needs. And are we giving him enough or you know, vice versa with, with Elliot and Isaac, are we giving them enough? And that I remember when, when we had Elliot, our second child, like there was this angst and there still is at times different, you know, when, depending on when you ask us, are are we doing, doing enough for all three of them?
2: I think that's going to stay. You know, I, I, one of the reasons I, I actually, after I conceived August within a very short time, I thought I, I want to have another child. I didn't want my whole world to be about just this life of appointment after appointment and I wanted to help him so much, but I thought about having a child pretty soon after. And I went to my first follow-up, that six-week follow-up after delivering August, and I asked the doctor who had delivered him. I don't quite know why I went to see her for the follow-up, but I did. And I asked her if um, I should think about having another child. And she said, you know, looking back, it's very sad. She said, well, you won't have that bad luck again. And so the bad luck, of course, was having her as my doctor, but... Yes. I mean, it's, it's hard to hear. It was hard to hear then. Then later, I, I asked, I can't remember whether it was his pediatrician or his neurologist. Now, his neurologist was wonderful. I loved her. And I, I asked her this list of things. Well, should I do hyperbaric chamber? Should I consider this? Should I consider that? And she said, you should consider another sibling, <laughs> meaning that August would have the stimulation of another being and the life that that would bring in. They were so right. I mean, Cleo would crawl all over him and she didn't think anything about him was different in any way. He was just her big brother and she was adoring and it was so it was so sweet. And he responded to her like no one else.
0: Yeah, I was struck by in our conversation with Cleo, she was talking about you know them in the room together, I think when she was doing homework or drawing and and August being there and just the The way she described the interplay between the two of them, both above the surface and below the surface, it was powerful. And I see that with our kids and and that connection both ways and the impact.
2: And to be honest, if Chris and I had been younger and had a a little bit more resources and support, I would have loved to have had a third. I mean, I I just think we didn't realize we were going to be you know, decent
1: parents. (laughs) I was going to ask you because, well, Cleo, of course, spoke about it so much. And for our listeners who haven't yet listened to Cleo's remarkable podcast, as soon as you stop listening to this, you need to go and listen to hers and then her father's, of course, Chris. But one of the things that stood out was how Cleo spoke about yours and Chris's loving marriage throughout, how she never saw anything but love and support for one another. And I wondered if that was your perspective as well within the marriage during what was obviously very many difficult periods.
2: I felt that um, Chris and I came together a really very sweet union in our marriage and had a, a nice period of time as couple without children. And then having children, there were some stressful times. You know, there's those arguments of like, our arguments are usually like, who does more work around the house? And um, some arguments or discussions about money. But I think we were just pretty devoted to those two. And that she perceives it as a very loving marriage, I'm very grateful for. I rely on Chris to help me make decisions. And I think we're really good about that kind of discussion with each other. We did have a really difficult period that Cleo just recently has talked about openly with us when we were in, um, we went to visit her for her birthday. She just turned 18. But the year after August passed away, very difficult year. And Chris and I argued a lot, like pretty much over nothing. And maybe I can remember four or five arguments. And I think it was just the exchange of stress, or the letting out of all the grieving, or it was so difficult. And um, Cleo cried, and you know, I feel very guilty for each one of these arguments. And Cleo remembers them all, of course. (laughs) But and then I said to her once, I said, "Well, at that time, do you think that?" your daddy and I should have split up. And she's like, Oh, no, that would have made it so much worse. So it's just so interesting to hear. You know, I have to be comfortable as she works through all this with her just like utter, painful, honest comments about things. But then at the end, she's so glad that we're together, which I'm grateful for her that she sees it that way.
1: I'm just grateful that there are people like you all in marriages and um, that can sort of withstand the kinds of stress and then horrific grief that you all have endured. And I was really interested to hear that. And I was also wondering, compared to Chris and Cleo, who both were so utterly shocked and surprised about when August passed away, I wondered if you were, or if you had I mean, I have many friends who have lost children, and some of them always knew that it was going to happen, and they prepare themselves, but then realize that there is no preparing. But I never heard with such sort of intensity as Cleo and Chris say that it was so shocking and such a surprise, and I wondered if that was true for you as well.
2: That is a great question for Cleo, witnessing Cleo and talking with Cleo about it now. She was so utterly surprised. And it, it's painful for me to see her still pain about it all and her, that she didn't get to say goodbye to him in a way that felt right to her. And so she has this, I guess it's closure with it. But for me, I mean, he had been sick and Um, You know, he wasn't a sick child, even though he had a number of disabilities and challenges. He had years of school with perfect attendance, with perfect attendance awards. And it wasn't until we had made this medical decision to put this baclofen pump in him that went wrong the minute it was installed. And Chris has a much better grasp of the timeline. But three or four years later, he ultimately... Died from respiratory infection that he was vulnerable to from all this horrible medical sequelae he endured. So I knew that he was getting. It was getting harder and harder for us to take care of him and the medical stuff and the, you know, the infections and the pain and writhing that August was enduring, which we didn't understand. And we had gone through all this medical workup for, it was painful. And it's like a part of me wanted a release from it and wanted August to be released from it. But I felt so horribly guilty. Like it's even difficult to admit it to you two, but at the same point in time, it's, I think important for people to know that those thoughts went through my head. And then when he appeared that he was in trouble and he got um, this, one of our caregivers called the ambulances and he was taken to the hospital. And I thought we thought that was it. And then he wound up getting ready to go home. And it was like, I was so excited and so pleased and like renewed efforts. And then he wound up passing away that night and Chris and I were able to be with him, but It was surprising because in the big picture, had this medical disaster not occurred, he would have been his happy little joyful self um, thriving and going to school where he was beginning to develop more communication skills with this new device they were using with him. So in that way, it was surprising. But I think maybe Chris and Cleo, it was a little bit more intense.
1: How do you cope in general? How did you cope and? Are you a person who does a lot of, I hate the word self-care now. I just, we have to think of another word than self-care, but it sounds like you had a strong career and that you were able to keep up with. And is that your passion, your career, or just you're doing very much the same? You're a physical therapist and you do Pilates instruction and that's- right. The Pilates I started in
2: 1995, I think, you know, I'm fairly ambitious and um, had I stayed in San Francisco, probably would have gone into a management teaching track. You know, I, I, I feel very loyal and very committed. I made this commitment to this man and to these children, you know, they didn't ask to be born. So I feel very committed to their lives and uh, financially, Chris and I you know, we're not strong. So I felt committed to try to stay in our house and not wind up in financial trouble. And and I just think whatever those values um, were propelled me forward. And then underneath it all, I'm sort of like my father, you know, this real optimistic, kind of fun loving, though I don't always get to have fun. But underneath it all, I'm sort of this fun loving individual. So just sort of keep going. And then I use exercise as my self care. And, you know, in those years, it was pretty much exercise. And then Chris and I would, you know, watch movies or cinema. And then it would be uh, fun with the kids.
1: Right. I remember you did, was it going to the pool on Saturdays? Yeah, we went to the pool and then. Right. I heard, remember that.
2: Movies and yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. She spoke so high, highly of that time. It was so sweet.
0: Well, I was going to say one of the things that struck me was the the finding individual time with, with each of the kids. And then, if I remember correctly, you, you did um, encourage therapy for Chloe. And did you ever. If you don't mind sharing, did you access therapy? Was that part of the coping process? Or
2: after August was born, I worked with a therapist in San Francisco that I had worked with um, with some. Issues that Chris and I had had, actually, before we decided to have August, we had a little snag in our own marriage, and we had gone to see this therapist together and individually, so I had a relationship developed with him, and after August was born, I went to see him. So that was very helpful. And then I didn't see anyone for a long time. And when August passed away, I developed what, it's going to sound a little bit trite, and I don't mean it to, but I just developed my grief plan of how I was going to like survive, because I felt very strong that I needed to be there for Cleo. And I didn't know what Cleo was going to bring to the table, Cleo and I had developed a remarkable relationship because she had become a dancer. And so I got to spend weekends and all these days doing dance things with her. So in my grief plan, I have exercise multiple times a week. I was going to eat well. I was not going to use food emotionally to help cope with it. And then I went to see a different therapist. And this therapist used a technique called EMDR, which... I don't know what that stands for. I can't remember right now, but it has to do with um, these eye movements that can affect your brainstem. And I would work on my, the painful memories of August that I couldn't get, through and I can still, I still have all those memories and I can actually feel them quite right now, but I could breathe, you know? And so I I went to see that therapist every week for an entire year, like as a discipline, (laughs) like not obsession, but I disciplined myself to go every week for a whole year. And then the second year I started to go less and now I haven't gone for some time, but um, at some point in time, Cleo went to see a therapist and it served a real wonderful purpose for her in some ways. In some ways she didn't like it and she kind of fought it, but she's, you know, started that process of, of working through some of the painful memories, such as not getting to say goodbye, some issues with her father, with um, Chris and I, and then issues with her own self. And, you know, it's fascinating the feelings that she has in relation to herself as a sister. It just, I could have never predicted some of the things that. She experiences.
1: I think EMDR is so interesting. I've heard about it before, and I think it's eye movement, something like desensitization or something, I think, and reprocessing. I know, I think that's what it stands for. And I've heard about it because I think a lot of people with PTSD find relief from it. And it's really interesting that it helped you so much. It's something that no one has ever brought up, but I have heard about it and I'm trying to remember.
2: Well, it's it's fascinating. Cleo worked with someone who's, um, her therapy is focused on trauma. And so trying to understand what Cleo went through in terms of trauma and overcoming trauma, and this person helped Cleo understand what happens in your brain when you experience the death of a loved one And, you know, not getting to say goodbye or experiencing your parents arguing these traumas. And Cleo had the opportunity to use some EMDR as well. And it's fascinating the work they do. And I would feel when I did my EMDR that the therapist was giving me this like gift, this opportunity to work through these same memories like over and over. We would talk about the same memory over and over again. And and it really was effective for for me.
1: When did you know that you were... Through with it, or when did you? St- it's a good question, Elizabeth. I just got so busy in life that I couldn't fit
2: it in. Whereas for the first year, it was the priority. And so when I couldn't fit it in anymore, I felt that that was a sign that it, it wasn't as important for me. And I think about her sometimes, and I think that the gifts she gave me is that I can use some of what we did together, even when I'm not with her. And you know, but I am just a huge fan of of therapy. Um, you know, Chris did, did, chose not to go that road, and he wound up writing the memoir about August, which is how he processed so much of what he needed to process.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about that because I remember thinking that when when he when we talked with him, and for me, I'm I'm kind of in a similar camp, but I, I've had this podcast to be my my way of processing. It's it's interesting how you can come at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I like the sense that you make where even though you're all sort of circling one another and, you know, those kind of merging circles, you still maintain your identity as a person kind of apart from that as well. That's what it feels like to me. But we've had the luxury of talking a little bit. Obviously, an hour talk with a person is not sufficient to grow to know them but a little bit but having spoken to all three what how I feel is that you're these beautiful circles that are merging and then you're off and when you merge in together and and hearing you the mother um, talk about overarching sort of care for Cleo as well as yourself it's just it's beautiful and strengthening in a way. I mean,
2: thank you. I mean, I I think you're right. That's the thing that marvels me about Cleo, and maybe it's your experience of your own son, is that I can hear her. I know she's my daughter, but I can also see that her circle in a sense is moving away from me. And it is my job to let that
1: circle move away. Yeah. How is that now? Cause that was just about to happen when we first talked and it (laughs) happened to me when my third child left. So how are you dealing with Cleo off at her dance school?
2: She's had some struggles of her own moving into the dance school, coping with some of the stresses, the demands are a little bit more than she expected physically. And so, but she's, has a wonderful roommate and I think that they've become supportive of each other, which is so wonderful that she has that. And one of her, I guess it's her assistant artistic director of her program has kind of taken her under her wing and has offered her support. And Cleo's going to have to learn how to do this without me. So it's pretty amazing to watch her kind of struggle and then It'll be a good day and a bad day. I still talk to her every day for like an hour, hour, hour and a half. So there's still, you know, parenting by cell phone is really, I'm a modern mom. Right. I've had some,
1: the cell phone parenting. I had to finally put my foot down and say, this cannot happen at 11 o'clock. Like you just, Unless it's some kind of crisis, like seriously, I can't listen to how you much you hate your math class and how burnout you are and whatever. At 11, it's okay if it's, you know, a little bit earlier, but I feel like what happens is my sons will kind of dump on me and then I'm left like lying on my back, staring at the ceiling like, oh my God, our lives are just like so screwed up. And then they're like, okay, bye. Thanks, mom and then they probably go out to like a party or something for all i know so i know at one point in time i said to cleo i said well maybe i should come get you and
2: she's like no i love it here and I'm like
0: Now, you both have to realize you're speaking from a position of privilege. There are plenty of parents who probably don't get a phone call for my mom when she listens to this. will wonder why I didn't call her every night at 11
2: o'clock when I was in college.
1: (laughs) No, I don't get it every day, but I get it enough. Yeah. And we're not, we're actually not. I mean, I have boys there. We don't talk for an hour and a half. I don't even know if they have that many words to say. (laughs) (laughs) I get like, how's it going? Good are you having a nice time? Yes. Yeah. But when they have troubles, they'll call me and I want them to. I'm not saying I don't want them to, but sometimes I feel like I'm just there receiving. And then as soon as it's out of their mouths and into me, they're like fantastic and I'm like destroyed. So that's
2: it's a really finally. good point. I, I really have to make myself work on my response to Cleo. Cleo told me recently that I've been a snowplow mom, which is the mom that wants to plow all the obstacles out of the way. And so I'm really working on that and letting her kind of deal with some of this herself. It's a great lesson.
1: Yeah. She's also young too. She was a little bit younger, I think. Younger and so much older and more mature in so many ways. But It's just hard when they're gone, you know. It's like circling back to the beginning, where we said, like, you can't even believe that they're their own person, but they truly are, and that they're yours, like that you somehow made them, and then they left your house after eighteen years. It's just the wildest thing when that happens. But well, this has been a wonderful sort of close closure uh, conversation with the whole family. You all are just. Not just an inspiration, but just there's so much profundity or so much that's profound in how you lead your lives and how you're able to articulate them too, which I know you know is an amazing thing. But thank you so much. Um, We have uh, what we call the lightning round. And maybe we can ask you if there is a book or some sort of that you would recommend to other caregivers, to other mothers who have lost their children or something that gets you through your life. I mean, I'd like we'll put a link to EMDR because I think that was really interesting hearing you talk about that.
2: Well, I have a couple books from when August was a baby and then one book as I read as he passed away. And when he was a newborn with the unknown outcome of what he was going to develop into There was a book called The Aware Baby by...
1: I can find it.
2: Yeah, Elisa Salter. And there's some downsides about that book, but what it taught me is how aware August was and babies of so many um, levels of development and to really listen to him and pay attention to him and what are his cries telling me. And that kind of opened my eyes to really being present for him. And then the other book was books written by this woman, Lily Nielsen, and it's L-I-L-L-I Nielsen, N-I-E-L-S-E-N. And she developed this active learning approach and this thing called the little room where you build this. We had someone build this for us, this little structure. And then within the structure, you hang all kinds of crinkly things and things that the, the baby just touches and it makes a response. And there's a special board they lay on. And it's this kind of detailed thing. It didn't cost a lot of money. And we built one for August and he would play in there and interact with these crinkly papers and fun little things to touch for hours at a time. It just got to be sad when he got too big for it. I felt those were really influential. And then the book that really I loved was A Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. And I just loved that book. It really, uh, my mother passed away when I was nine years old. So, you know, grieving for someone passing that you love dearly was not new to me, though it was very different to have it be your child. And after my mother died, I had a long time of magical thinking. And with August, I would allow myself to have magical thinking, and I felt it was very therapeutic, and I enjoyed that book. Um, It meant a lot.
1: Yeah, that's an extraordinary book about grief. And then what
0: about an inspirational person or group for you along the caregiver journey?
2: There was a group in San Francisco called Support for Families of Children with Disabilities, and they just hooked me up with a mentor mom, and I went to weekly meetings, and I just felt like I was a part of a group of people who were organized and had structure, and I felt supported there. And when I moved to Jacksonville, I sorely missed them because there was nothing like that here. And the other one was I had heard someone talk on the radio, and it might have been even Neil Young, talk about the Bridge School, which is a school in Northern California that his wife or his ex-wife, Peggy Young, had founded one of the co-founders. And they didn't look at children like August as being disabled or less than or not typical. They looked at them as having communication needs and whatever it took so they could communicate. Okay, you need a wheelchair so you can sit upright, so you can place your hand in the right position so you can communicate. So it was all about communication and it seemed so positive and hopeful. And that guided me through all the rest of the time I had with August was thinking about him, what he needed to do to communicate to us. And what was he trying to communicate and how could he play and how could he look at us? And that really influenced me that the mission of that school.
1: This will be not on the podcast, but earlier when we were talking about um, my friend who lost her daughter who had cerebral palsy her they moved to California from New York. To go to the Bridge School, her daughter went there for many years. To the Bridge School, it was such an extraordinary place.
2: And I told Chris, had I not been pregnant with Cleo, I might have remained in San Francisco when he moved here, so August could go to the Bridge School. Yeah,
0: you know that's a wonderful way to end it. Just thinking about the positive, optimistic outlook, and and the embracing of you know difference. In that school, I mean, you could see that. We've heard it now through your family and from you. It's just w- so wonderful to, as Elizabeth mentioned earlier, even though it's been a brief set of conversations um, with you and your family, it's been wonderful to get to know you and to, you know, to be inspired by how you've um, are living this journey. So, th- thank you so
1: much for for taking the time. Thank you so much, Eileen. Thank you both so much. I,
2: I greatly admire the work you both have the pleasure of doing and supporting your children and other families. And, and I just want everyone to have the opportunity to reach this. One of my own clients came to me and asked me if I'd ever heard your podcast. And I said, well, yes, I have. And I asked her how she found it. And she said, well, I'm always looking for something interesting. And then I told her about Cleo's Cleo. She didn't know Cleo had done one and she loves Cleo ready and she was floored it was so wonderful that you gave her the opportunity to find
1: that
0: oh that's that's wonderful to hear
1: thank you for telling us that
0: thanks again to eileen for sitting down with us if you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did be sure to subscribe to the show you can find more episodes by visiting us at wholiveslikethispodcast.com thank you for listening we'll be back here in two
2: weeks be sure to tune in then